and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 46. And 46 is the number of human chromosomes. So it makes perfect sense that today's podcast is about clinical trials. The podcast this week is sponsored by Jubilant Biosys. Jubilant Biosys is a small molecule CRDMO and serves the global pharma and biotech industry, offering fully integrated drug discovery, development and manufacturing services. From our five sites in India, we provide an end-to-end model incorporating discovery, chemistry and biology, DMPK, chemical development and GMP, and commercial manufacturing. Our scientific excellence is supported by world-leading infrastructure, FDA accreditation, and a strong commitment to our people, new technologies, and ESG. We're proud of our track record of over 85 integrated discovery programs and the key role that our scientists have played in collaborative teams, driving innovation and taking assets to the clinic and beyond. If you're looking for your next outsource partner, come and see us at www.jubilantbiosis.com. I'm Jim Cornell from The Biotech, and the reason why the podcast this week is about clinical trials is tomorrow, May the 20th, is International Clinical Trials Day. I haven't seen many greeting cards for that one, but who knows? If you want to know why May the 20th, well, it was on May the 20th in 1747 that James Lind started a clinical trial. It could have been the first, or at least the first documented. James Lind was from Edinburgh in Scotland, and he was the surgeon on the HMS Salisbury. He'd heard about the potential to use citrus fruit to cure scurvy on ships. That part wasn't his idea, but the way that he wanted to test that certainly was. He devised a trial of just 12 men grouped into pairs, and they were given a variety of dietary supplements, from cider to oranges and lemons. Apparently the trial only lasted for six days because they ran out of fruit, but within that time there was a noticeable improvement in the group eating the fruit, and that provided Lind with the evidence that he needed of the link between citrus fruits and scurvy. And then he left the Navy. So that's the history lesson for today. And there's another little tidbit as well. Lind wrote his medical thesis on venereal diseases and the world's first venereal disease clinic opened in the same year, 1747. It wasn't a short week here in the UK, so we're all shattered at working for five days for a change. Still, no problem as there's another four-day week right around the corner. The weather here in this part of Scotland wasn't crazy at the weekend for once, so I did a hike from the Firth of Clyde up to Loch Lomond, which may sound like it's long, but it wasn't too bad. Loch Lomond was full of tourists, and I ended up translating at a food stand for two German couples who were having a bit of a hard time with the Scottish accent. I think their English was okay, I just don't think that they had a clue about what was being said. Anyway, we'll see what adventures and weather this weekend brings. I should steer the ship back in the direction of that 276th anniversary of the first clinical trial on a ship when there was no artificial intelligence, no biotech, and hard though it is to believe, no smartphones or computers. I suspect there was no FDA approvals process either. There might have been a McDonald's sale through though. 
So today we're looking at clinical trials with two interviews and they are conversations with Dr. Michael Don, Head of Development and Chief Medical Officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute and Kelly McKee, Vice President of Decentralized Clinical Trials and Patient Registries at Medidata. And so now we'll take a quick look at some of the week's news headlines over at labiotech.eu that you may have missed, because there were some quite interesting ones, including one on salt flats in Spain. More on that later. There were articles on the six most advanced microbiome players aiming for the gut. New Alzheimer's drugs could result from a discovery regarding immune brain cells, and a new menopause drug received FDA approval. There was another piece of news about Alzheimer's when researchers discovered a mutation that may lead to new treatments. Molsid is developing a rapid antimicrobial resistance test, and LabGenius is hoping to create molecules with a massive increase in tumor-killing ability. There was a story on five advancements in brain tumor research over the past year. We had an article on six of the best Norwegian biotech companies, and Scribe and Prevail are going to collaborate to accelerate CRISPR-based genetic medicine for neurological and neuromuscular diseases. There was an interesting one on diagnosis of inflammatory diseases using synthetic peptides. Sania Therapeutics launched to advance neural circuit dysfunction medicines, and a new epilepsy study could lead to new treatment options. Eight rare diseases were selected for a gene therapy trial portfolio. The UK life sciences industry responded to the launch of the UK science strategy, and there was another intriguing one, and that was a study using a pigment from microorganisms at Las Salinas de Santa Paula, or the Santa Paula Salt Flats in eastern Spain, to possibly treat cancer. There was an article on six women's health biotech companies. Google Cloud added AI solutions for drug discovery, and researchers made a discovery about the weight loss pathway in cancer. You can read all of these and more at labiotech.eu. So let's get into this week's first interview for International Clinical Trials Day, which is tomorrow, May the 20th. Kelly McKee is Vice President, Decentralized Clinical Trials and Patient Registries at Medidata. And I first asked about the fact that artificial intelligence, or AI, seems to be everywhere in the news at the moment. You know, I think that AI is definitely a hot topic and there are certainly applications in healthcare, but like anything, you just have to be very um, conscientious and deliberate in the application of it. We can certainly leverage AI-powered insights to help, right? So a couple of use cases here are insight selection. So looking at investigators um, based on their past performance and metrics such as operationality, and ability to recruit diverse patient populations it can certainly help uh, sponsors select the best sites for their trials and understand benchmarks in diversity and enrolling up uh, underrepresented populations in the past. And that gives you an idea of how the future could be or how much you need to augment your diversity strategies for clinical trials and patient recruitment. And then another um, use case, which is really exciting and really patient forward, 
is to utilize AI-powered insights to generate control arms in clinical trials, utilizing all the data that has been collected in the past from trial participants to essentially enroll those past participants' data as a control arm in the clinical trial so that the clinical trial only needs to have treatment arms. So that means that you can enroll faster. And it also means that every single patient that you enroll into that study can be on active treatment, which is much more attractive to patients to want to participate in a trial where they don't have to be enrolled into, you know, a placebo or a control arm of standard therapy. How do you think, though, that life sciences can sell the obvious positives of AI to perhaps an increasingly skeptical public? You know, that's always the problem with clinical trials, right? So like very few people even still understand what clinical trials are all about. And there are some good reasons for that. Um, There's a lack of trust. Um, There's also, you know, historically, this industry hasn't been the best. Uh, Tuskegee, Henrietta Lacks, et cetera. And we really haven't focused on all of the amazing things that have come out of it. If you think about it, you go to your medicine cabinet, you take medicine, your family, friends takes medicine. All of those medicines are not possible without clinical trial participants. And so if you take that step back and you say, hey, I had a headache yesterday. I took paracetamol. We can, you know, speak it, uh, the UK talk. Well, that's because people participated in those trials way back when. And so... If we want to continue to be able to offer much needed medicines to the public, people are going to have to participate in studies. And so more people started to understand the value of participation during the COVID pandemic when tens of thousands of people, including myself, participated in the COVID vaccine and the the treatment trials. And because there was such great awareness and people knew that we needed these solutions, People said, hey, I want to be part of this. And those studies were able to enroll record fast. And, you know, if we look at science, it's just, it's taking off. So CRISPR technology, CAR-T therapy, we're making huge strides in the science part. But unless we increase awareness and access and inclusion in clinical trials and get those people to participate, we're going to be, you know, stuck. Could you give me a bit of background on how you at the company at Medidata utilize AI in your work? Yeah, in those very same use cases I spoke about, right? So utilizing past performance, historical data of the millions of patients who have been enrolled into clinical trials that we've supported um, and utilizing that to help sponsors make informed decisions about sites, looking at that past performance when it comes to therapeutic area, patient population, et cetera. And it's just one part, right? So it's just, it's additional information that can help make an informed decision. And then utilizing that data for synthetic control arms so that uh, patients don't have to enroll into a placebo-controlled or standard of care therapy-controlled study. And uh, could you give me a bit of background, I guess, on the company itself and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So Metadata has been around since 1999, and we started off as an EDC, or Electronic Data Capture Company, in 2011. Mitris, which is the company founded by Anthony Costello, who runs Patient Cloud, which is where I work, ran the very first decentralized clinical trial with Pfizer, the remote study. 
later a metadata acquired Mitris. And in 2020, we launched My Metadata, which is a patient platform where patients have one login for life. So what does that mean? It means that we're eliminating much of the burden in participating for patients. It's very patient-focused. It's designed for patients by patients with the help of our patient insights board. And my metadata's patient portal allows patients to participate pre-trial, in-trial, and post-trial, again, with that same login, so that they can learn about clinical trials, be educated, informed, prepare to participate, and then participate through e-consent, e-pro, so electronic patient-reported outcomes, so collecting data directly from patients, live video visits, sensors and wearables, as well as post-trial receiving their data back all on the same platform, and then learning about new clinical trial opportunities. I work in patient cloud. That's what I do every day. Does the company work directly with patients or with pharma companies or... Yeah, so Metadata supports sponsors and CROs in providing that site and patient-facing technology solutions. We have the industry's only turnkey DCT offerings as well. We work with sites because they're utilizing our systems to enter data in. So entering the clinical trial data about their patients directly into our systems. And then we work with patients because they're utilizing our technologies as well to report their data. And we also have that patient insights board um, so that all of our technology solutions involve patients from the ideation, creation, through the execution of those technology capabilities. I like to say that Nike wouldn't put out a sneaker or trainer without putting it on a person's foot first and having them go for a run. But so many other companies will just put out technology without really involving patients first. So if you wouldn't put that shoe on a person before you sell it, you shouldn't put that technology out for patients to use without first involving patients. Are your solutions used around the world or? We're used totally around the world. And we support um, the majority of clinical trials and have been doing so since, you know, 1999. So you couldn't put a number on how many trials it's being used with? I can put a number on that. (laughs) Um, Yes, it's actually right on my screensaver. It's an impressive number, so I don't want to get it wrong. (laughs) All right. It probably changes by the minute as well. It does, but we just had a really big milestone. Nine million patients enrolled in over 30,000 clinical trials. All right. That's quite impressive. You mentioned the milestones, but I imagine there have been some pretty impressive um, results in that time as well. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think of all of the advances in medicine since 1999, (laughs) um, almost 30 years. uh, Yeah. I mean, the COVID vaccine trials, CRISPR technologies, CAR-T therapies. I mean, you think about just all of these amazing things that are happening in science and clinical trials supported all of those. Absolutely. What are the challenges with performing clinical trials today and how can we overcome some of those? Yeah, there's lots of there's lots of challenges. It's not easy for sure. Um, you know, I think the first is that we need to improve access awareness and inclusion in regards to patient recruitment and patient retention of those participants in, in research. We currently don't have enough patients enrolling in trials every year. If you look at clinicaltrials.gov, there are about 56 million patients needed to fill those trials at any given time. And that, you know, varies month to month, year to year, but it's about 56 million roughly. And there are about 2 million participants 
who enroll in trials every year. So there's a big delta there that we need to overcome in order to fill all those seats on the bus, if you will, and the bus being those clinical trials. Coupled with that is that clinical trials are continuing to be more and more complex. And so while wide adoption of technologies has revolutionized clinical trials, the science keeps advancing too, and they just keep getting more complex. There are brilliant physician scientists who are designing these protocols for like the perfect science, but people aren't perfect. And so you can't find those perfect people to enroll in that perfect science. And so it gets harder and harder. And then there's the site burden. So investigators, physicians who are selected to participate in research, there aren't enough of those either. <laughs> and then at the sites, there really aren't enough resources and staff to run these very complex trials. And we're seeing a high turnover rate and limited number of research coordinators at sites. So you take all of that and it, you find that it's really, really hard. Obviously, if you could just wave a magic wand and have all of those be full, but how do you, how do we get closer to that ideal? Yeah, you know, we need to make clinical research an option for more people. So we need to make more physicians aware of the value of research so that they are offering it to their patients. Patients want to hear from their doctors that clinical research uh, is an option. And unless the physicians participating in the trial, they're not really offering it to their patients. So we need to come at it from that way. And then we also need to come at it direct to patients. Patients need to understand the value of research and understand that it may be an option for them. Too few people think that clinical trials are a last resort, but if you like change that paradigm in your mind, like clinical trials represent the future of medicine, wouldn't it be great if they were an option at the forefront? They're not for everybody. It needs to be an informed decision. Um, that's why we have informed consent. But if we can make clinical trials an option for more people from the get-go, I really believe that more people would participate. Do you do studies as to why people don't participate? I mean, is it physicians saying, oh, it's too much trouble? Or is it patients thinking, well, because it's experimental, it's going to kill me? Or You know, I think there are many reasons and there have been studies that have been done. CISCript puts out their perceptions and insights into clinical um, research every, I think it's every other year. And the main driver every year continues to be that they're just not aware that it's an option. There is mistrust. There is that, you know, fear of the unknown. But the main driver is they just don't understand what clinical research is, and they just don't know that it's an option. Of course, Clinical Trials Awareness Day or International Clinical Trials Day is coming up. Do you see the benefit of a day like that? And how can it be better utilized, I guess, to bridge that gap? Yeah, absolutely. I see a benefit in it. Um, we've got a lot of awareness days, right? And so I think there's an awareness day every day. But in the pharma industry and clinical trials industry, we certainly celebrate. That's really just an opportunity for us to thank the people who participate in trials, the sites who participate in trials and the sponsors and CROs who are, you know, really driving forward the advancements that we're seeing in medicine. I think that it is important. We don't thank these people enough. Uh, many times patients aren't even thanked for their participation at the end of a trial. And they're the reasons that we have these new medicines come to market. So these days are important because it gives us an opportunity to say, thank you for doing what you do. You know, just like Mother's Day and Father's Day are important too. I mean, you're thankful for your mom every day, but on Mother's Day, it's really nice to, you know, let her sleep in and bring her a cup of coffee in bed and say, thank you 
I really appreciate you. It's the same with clinical trials day. I think it's also important that we treat patients who participate in research with the respect that they deserve. So at Metadata, we were stopping use of the word subject because it's just a meaning to people who participate in research. They're participants, they're patients, right? We're called patient cloud. And so uh, I think those little steps, along with recognizing the value of research participation on clinical trials day is really important. How do you see the future of clinical trials developing? Well, um, I'm an optimist by nature. And so I really do believe that we're going to see continuous innovations and the growing use of technology to enable more patients to participate in clinical trials. We're going to see more decentralized clinical trial technologies being used in trials in a hybrid way so that we can take the burden off of patient participation. You know, right now, the average patient travels over two hours for every study visit. If we can alleviate some of that burden, it's going to be great for patients, and it's also going to be great for the environment and sustainability, and we can do that through the use of the right technologies. I think we can enable clinical research to acquire better insights into patient health um, and the effectiveness of these new drugs and vaccines and devices that are being tested. And then I think that um, we need to continue to include patients in the design of trials and technologies and continue to utilize technologies and DCT solutions to support the growing demands for enrolling more people um, and that continuous innovation. So I think the future is bright, but I think we still all need to work really, really hard to improve experiences in clinical trials and to get more people and doctors to participate. Next, we head over to the Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute to talk about what they do and clinical trials in general in a conversation with Dr. Michael Dunn, and he is Head of Development and the Chief Medical Officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute. The Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute is a non-profit, fully integrated biotechnology organization. We do phase one studies through phase three, and we will support registration of dossiers when the time comes. So it's a full thickness biotechnology organization, fully integrated. That's a very important part of this. Our manufacturing people and clinical people, the regulatory people, we all sit next to each other in the same room. So we, we're very focused on the end game, which is getting these products out to patients. The MRI is an affiliate of the Gates Foundation. In kind of business terms, we're kind of a wholly owned subsidiary. So the funding for the Gates Medical Research Institute comes directly from the Gates Foundation, which, as you can imagine, means that we align very tightly with the mission and the focus of the Gates Foundation. So all the work that the foundation does through grants that goes on for years, eventually, when there's a product in mind, may come to us. We're all very happy if pharma, established pharma, would like to take one of these potential products and develop it further. That is great. Anything we can do to help, we love that. But we know that there are certain situations that make it difficult for pharma to be able to carry some of these products forward. The studies need to be done in difficult parts of the world, specifically lower and middle income countries where the infrastructure is not always easy to work through. And perhaps from a commercial basis, it's more challenging to be able to devote all those resources, which pharma has to be able to do to stay in business. Pharma is a force for good in our minds. I mean, a lot of the things that we have today are because pharma has dug deep and made things happen. But there are some 
challenges in the system that we would like to think at MRI, we can help complement so we can get good products to patients that really need them. So that's kind of the structure of the MRI overall and why we exist today. Again, as I was saying, we're targeting those disease areas that are of importance to the Gates Foundation. That's what we work on. Right now, we have projects in tuberculosis, malaria, acute malnutrition, diarrheal diseases, and we're working on some pneumonia projects as well. I can walk through those a little bit so that you can see the breadth of the things that we're doing here. In tuberculosis, we're working on both vaccines and drugs, therapeutics, interventions there. For the vaccines, projects working on BCG, which is the original TB vaccine, and we're following up on some interesting data that was published years ago to see if that can be repeated to see if we can help younger people actually extend the value of BCG a little further. Most of our focus, though, in TB vaccines is on a new vaccine that Glaxo actually started. It's called the M72 vaccine. They published some nice data in the New England Journal a few years ago showing reduction in patients who had previously been exposed to TB in the incidence of clinical TB to follow. We think that's very important, and we have a large effort now on going to be able to study that vaccine in a very large clinical trial to, to establish that it's something that we can roll out to the rest of the world. Very exciting, a lot of work on that, more to come down the road. We also work in, um, as I was saying, in TB therapeutics. So we would like to be able to create a drug regimen which is easier for patients to take which gets around the challenges of resistance that we have now to the therapies that are available and safer, basically, because there's some toxicities associated with the drugs that are out there now. So we're working carefully with the foundation and with many partners, many partners at great partners, to be able to come up with a shorter, simpler, safer regimen to be able to treat tuberculosis. Very exciting, makes some great progress there. And um, we should have, we have a number of clinical studies that we've been doing so far. These kind of phase one, phase two studies, just look for effect of the drug on the burden of tuberculosis and the sputum specifically. And very promising data from that. And eventually we'll put those all together into a regimen that we hope will meet the objectives. Okay, we're also working in malaria and we have a vaccine. And now we do have a monoclonal antibody in malaria as well. So the malaria vaccine is a next generation vaccine. So there's the foundation was a big supporter of the vaccine that's now been approved, this RTSS vaccine. It's great to have progress. We've needed a malaria vaccine, but I think that there's some opportunities left behind. That vaccine is not quite as potent as we would have liked to see. So we're working now on a next generation vaccine that might improve the quality of the vaccine that's out there right now. Very exciting on that. Lots working. That's kind of an early stage project right now for us. We're also working on a monoclonal antibody. We're building on some success that the NIH has had with monoclonals. Very exciting area. It's never been done before. We're very fortunate to be part of that whole world right now. And we should start our phase one study with the monoclonal later this year. So that's great. So both the antibody and the vaccine are important at the end of the day, both for, well, specifically to help towards elimination. That's really where this is driving, right? We have small molecules to be able to treat people who are actively sick. But we'd like to go the next step further and reduce the burden of malaria. That's been the objective of the foundation for a long time. And we think these two tools can actually help us get there at the end of the day. We're focused on also diseases of childhood. That's a very important part of the foundation. And one of the diseases that's a challenge is acute malnutrition. It's got a high morbidity and mortality rate. And while therapeutic foods and other interventions have helped, we lack a breakthrough in that area. Let's put it that way. So the foundation supported a study with a probiotic. B. infantis was the probiotic. 
in babies that were severely malnourished. And they found, in fact, that it's that this intervention substantially increased the rate of weight gain in these babies who took the probiotic intervention in a way that was really stunning, actually. Very small study. It's a published science translational medicine quality study, but small. So we want to follow up now with that to see within a well-powered phase three type of trial, we can reproduce those results. And we'll be doing that study shortly in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Tanzania, Kenya, in the places where severe malnutrition in babies is a real problem. That's very exciting, very different for all of us because working in probiotics has not been done really to the standards that we typically see for vaccines and drugs and antibodies. So it's a challenge for us because we have to come up with the designs, the packaging, manufacturing characteristics. It's a challenge to bring all the pharma expertise to an area that has not been studied in detail before. But we have a great team. We have lots of great people here with lots of experience. And we can build on that to create a new path forward for, for this kind of intervention. Very exciting there. We're also working in diarrheal diseases. And right now we're focused on a Shigella vaccine. The foundation has been supporting the work in Shigella for many years. There's a particular vaccine candidate that we think is very attractive. We're working closely with the manufacturer of that vaccine to get it to the point where we can take it into phase one studies. That's probably going to happen in the next year or two. We have lots of manufacturing things to focus on first. I just point that out and, you know, in what we do, like the real cool stuff is the clinical trials, but the super hard work is getting a thing to actually study in the trials. I think we underestimate how complicated that is. But an organization like MRI can actually make that work because we bring the right people with lots of experience to solving the technical problems that you see in developing a drug candidate. And I've been doing this for 30 years, and this is a great team here. They know exactly what they're doing. I have great confidence that I'll be able to do my clinical work because the team before me has set the groundwork with great drugs and vaccines and antibodies. We appreciate all this, the challenges with pneumonia in babies. The foundation has been focused on this for many, many years, and they have supported work with an RSV monoclonal antibody. And we have now done some phase one work with a particular monoclonal, and we're analyzing the data now. We understand that the RSV world is evolving. We still see a role for this particular candidate in treatment in LMICs and lower middle income countries specifically. So. There's conversations happening now broadly about where to go next with that. But you can see this study on clintrials.gov if you want to see the design of that. But we think, again, it's about the children at the end of the day and the mortality and morbidity from RSV is very significant. And we'd like to find some way to help out with that. So those are the general areas that we're working in. There are other areas that we might work in at some point because the foundation is doing projects in areas outside of those I just described. But what happens really is the foundation takes the projects forward. And at some point when it looks like it could be a product, we have a conversation. Is this a place where we have pharma partners that can take over? Great, great, all good. If it's a challenge with the pharma partners, we have a discussion between our leadership and the leadership of the foundation about how we would do this. What does it look like? What is the roadmap to success? What's the timing, the people, the cost, the challenges? A very robust discussion about whether we should take something into MRI and make it work. And um, there's lots of projects, great projects that the foundation is working on. And maybe one day some of those will come to us if need be. Happy to do that if it happens. And again, just to finish up, I think, on the philosophy here. I mean, we're really about partnering, right? We're partnering with people. That's how we make it work. We're here to complement the system that's already doing great things out there. And we have the generosity, basically, of the co-chairs at the foundation. We have the ability to fill in the gaps, to move things forward that might otherwise get a little lost. And 
that to me is why I'm here at MRI at this point, because I think we're able to complement this system with something which is a great system at heart, but has some places that I think we can add something to. I guess there must be quite a lot of flexibility involved with some of those partnerships that you're mentioning, because there are so many different challenges that you encounter. Oh my gosh, absolutely, yes. And I think what's nice about the MRI is that we, many, most of us have come from that environment. So we can appreciate the challenges up front. We know where there's going to be some things that will be tricky to get done in that environment. Sometimes it's just having conversations to help people through with the challenges and all good. You know, if pharma can solve the problem, we're more than happy to support that if we need to. But there are some things that I think, you know, are difficult for pharma to be able to manage. So we like to put those on the table first, say this is how we can help what we think are the problems that you might be facing. And then we start a dialogue because we don't know everything about every organization. They're in different places at different times. And we start a productive dialogue to get us to a good place. And I have to say, generally, the farmer partners are very happy to work with us. Our interactions are really are great because it's people, right? At the end of the day, it's people on their team, people on our team. We just we know where we're going at the end of the day. And we work really well together. And that's how this is going to get solved. How This is how we're going to get new products out to lower and middle income countries by working in partnership with people that have great expertise. One of the issues with or one of the challenges is sometimes, and the whole goal of this for everybody is to help people, but clearly pharma companies and other companies have to make money as well. How much of a challenge is that when you're talking about drugs that cost an extremely high amount of money, then that's one thing. But you've got to, especially in low and middle income countries, you've really got to be able to make a difference. How do you tackle that? Yes, no, that's an excellent point. And that is some of the challenge that happens for right? So we look at that a number of ways. We appreciate that the problem of the cost of goods for these is important, but there are solutions for that, right? So the foundation is very keyed into access and cost and pricing. So there are some technical solutions that we can add, for example, to monoclonal antibody production, where we can improve the productivity of the cell lines that make these antibodies. And focus on that specifically from day one and only move candidates forward that have the in vitro activity that we need to see, but also can be made at a cost which is acceptable to the market at the end of the day. So that's one way we can work together. I think at some point, you know, there are hard decisions that have to get made. If something's going to be too expensive at the end of the day for the market we're looking for, we need to keep working to find a way forward with a product that will be actually applied in the regions that we're focused on where the risk, the cost benefit assessment is works at the end of the day. So we're very sensitive to that and we're aware of that. We don't blame people. You know, you're not doing this because it's like too expensive. That is not a solution. That is not productive in any way or shape. We know why it's expensive. Technology is expensive, especially new and important technologies can be very expensive. But there are solutions around that, right? The funder side can actually be somewhat flexible as well while we're getting the cost of these, these products down. Our focus is mostly here in MRI on the science, though, I have to say. We're all about the science all day. So if science can bring a solution to the cost of goods, we'll make that work. At some point, society will have to balance out what it is that we're offering relative to other options. So cost is important. We try to focus on that as much as we can. Some of the cost of the trials, right, is very expensive, and we're able to pick up some of that. So we do decrease some of the burden. Some of the risk is taken off the table because we're providing some support for these clinical trials. And that's an important factor in pharma's decision about whether to go forward, right? It's the likelihood of success actually builds into the cost of the capital. So we can take some of that risk off the table. That also helps make things a little bit more productive at the end of the day. There are quite a lot of challenges about putting together clinical trials 
of late. How do you manage to address those, especially again when you're talking about low and middle income countries in some cases? Yes, yes. Well, the people at MRI are very experienced in the drug development process, right? Including interfaces with the regulatory authorities all over the world, actually. So I'll get back to that in a second. Um, some of the technical challenges that we have to face, some of the patient interface challenges, informed consent, ethics committees, how do you make all that work? They're very different in different parts of the world. The processes are very different. I would like to think that is an expertise that the MRI has today, but will will actually improve upon over time. So my team, which does a lot of the clinical work, does what you're talking about. They're, they're the ones that interface with society at all the various levels. And I, I have to say, there have been challenges there. When you work with the U.S. and Europe and the regulatory front, for example, there are very clear paths forward. There are timelines, 30 days will get your response, and meetings are scheduled, there's agendas, there's people you know where they're going, there's guidance documents, all of that maps forward. When we move into other parts of the world that don't have that infrastructure in place, it becomes tricky for us. Timelines get a little wonky, right? Because we think it'll take 30 days, it could take four months, not one month. And there's some reasons for that. So we try to build some of that into our timelines and we try to build expertise internally with consultants, with contractors in the region that can guide us in ways that make the studies run as efficiently as possible. But, you know, by and large, the principles are the same everywhere. They really are more similar than different. The application in specific regions can be a little different. We have to take the patient's perspective in mind and the patients are very different obviously, in one part of the world versus the other. We work closely with community advisory boards, for example, to help us understand whether what it is that we're going to be studying in a region works for the people in that region. And how do we make it clear to the patients who are going to be in the study what it is that we're actually doing in this trial, why we're doing it, what their role is going to be. We work with the community members that can guide us, and they're very helpful and very positive and energetic, and we really like working with them at the end of the day because it makes us all very successful. May is kind of the biggest month there is for awareness days, but probably 90% of awareness days are of conditions. Clinical trials day is a little bit unusual in that respect. How important is having a day such as clinical trials day? It's great that there's a clinical trials day, actually. I think what we need to make good decisions for society is data, right? We need carefully designed studies that give us data to make decisions on. Not impressions of what might be true or not true, but real science to guide what we do next. And that's what a clinical trial does at the end of the day. Highly structured and agreed upon template for various disparate parties to come together around the analysis of the output of the trials, for example, and what we're going to do with that at the end of the day. So the trial itself and execution of the trial is important, but I, I think, you know, it's a nice day to recognize the fact that this is how society comes together to be able to move solutions forward. It just seems that with something like take brain cancer, it's a rallying point for people to be able to kind of move that forward or do fundraisers. But with clinical trials, I guess the industry itself knows the importance of clinical trials. I just wonder about how that interfaces with communication with the general public about the importance of clinical trials. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a nice opportunity for all of us in the community, and I'm included. You know, I don't do much work in brain cancers, for example, but I'd like to know that somebody's doing studies in that, and that's, you know, there's there's opportunities for us in the future to have new therapeutics in an area that I'm going to fully understand. Yeah, I think there's an opportunity for just people in general to understand how it is 
that we come up with these solutions to medical problems. And they don't they don't kind of happen because the local doctor thinks this is what we should do now to take care of patients, much as that's a great thing, you know, to have your docs take care of you. They need guidance. They need help. And where does that come from? You know, if you're someone you know, in the community, you may not know that it really comes from these trials that give the doctors data to make decisions about how to take care of you. Are there any of the trials that you're working on right now that are close to fruition? I mean, obviously, you can't give away any secrets or anything, but are there any that you're particularly proud of at the moment? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, that's a good question, actually. I, I love all that we're doing. I love the whole process, right? So you're asking the guy, like, he just loves to do this stuff. So I like all the bits. I like just getting the study started and analyzing data and everything. I think what you're getting at is they're like, is there data that will, a phase three kind of data that will actually help us make decisions? I think we're a little, got time before that because the MRI has been around for about five years now. So it takes a long time to do all the work required to get you something that's registration uh, material. So soon, stay tuned. But to me, I, when I see a phase one study de-risk an asset so that it's safe and it's giving us the PK that I need, the pharmacokinetic variables that I need to know whether it's going to work in phase three. That's very exciting to me because now I know that I'm so much closer to being able to see something that will work for patients. That's not enough. You have to do a lot more. But just de-risking something on the path to getting it out to patients is very exciting for people that do trials all the time. So I say on that front, we have many candidates in the earlier stages of clinical trials, which are very promising. In the TB drug space, for example, very, very interesting data that's coming out of that. I think we'll have better regimens to treat TB in a reasonable time frame because of all the hard work that's been going on for a decade to get these new drugs to come out to the point where they can get into phase one studies. I guess that one of the biggest things at the moment is artificial intelligence. Is that making a difference in the capacity to speed up trials or bring drugs to people quicker? a great question, actually. I'm kind of optimistic about the role of AI in helping us solve some really complicated problems. I know that we have to watch where that goes. We have to keep the humans in the equation. I think that's important. But I think for on the science front, it opens up pathways that you might not have thought about before. We, we don't blindly follow things that you, know, you just read somewhere. We don't do that in the science. We think about it. But sometimes you have to you have to see the path. You have to see that there's something to actually explore. And I think AI could be very useful for that. It's especially important when we're looking at large bodies of data. So for an example, just to go science for a second, we're looking at a lot of biomarkers, things that give us a sense that, for example, a TB drug regimen based on very early data, like in the first week or two, right, that that will predict whether that patient will be cured because the regimens can take four, five, six months right, to be effective. But what if we could learn really early on, within a few weeks, that the regimen you're on is going to work for you? Before we've gone the six months and then waited to see whether you relapse, that would be fabulous. But to do that, we need to look for biomarkers, so blood tests, you know, evidence that there's some TB floating around in you still, that kind of thing, and put that all together in some kind of algorithm that gives us a sense of whether this is going to be a successful intervention with this patient or not. The amount of data that is required to make that work is staggering, staggering. We have multiple servers all over the world that are stacked with data from these biomarker studies. So there are ways now to use kind of big data systems, large data systems to be able to analyze all that. And we will continue to do that. But we kind of almost need, we need help with that. 
there's so many variables that are going back and forth. It's very hard for us to just figure that out. We need algorithms. AI could be useful for that. Quantum could be useful for that at the end of the day. I'm not sure yet to create the right problem to solve with quantum, but we have big things that we need to get solved and we need some help with that. So I think AI could be great if it's focused to what we're looking for and we don't blindly follow it down a path that may not be productive. Sure. And I guess it's utilizable in so many different areas that I think the the big controversy is more about, you know, jobs and taking over our lives. Whereas with science, it's a little bit different because it's helping to make decisions quicker. Yeah, no, I think that it's the opposite for like clinical. This will give us more things to be able to study because we'll see new paths to go. We'll need more people and more expertise. And I think it's going to be all for good at the end of the day. We just have to watch that it's not taking us to places that we're blindly following, you know, that that would be bad. Don't blindly follow AI. But I think it can help us open up possibilities. And, you know, jobs are constantly getting resorted in society, aren't they? There's a lot of jobs we used to do we don't do anymore. We're kind of redirecting now to kind of new opportunities for people to be productive. You know, AI will be a tool for the next new jobs that we haven't even considered yet. couple of really interesting guests this week and of course quite topical not only with the clinical trials day anniversary but also talking about artificial intelligence and just a reminder that the podcast this week is sponsored by jubilant biosis jubilant biosis is a small molecule crdmo and serves the global pharma and biotech industry offering fully integrated drug discovery development and manufacturing services From our five sites in India, we provide an end-to-end model incorporating discovery, chemistry and biology, DMPK, chemical development and GMP, and commercial manufacturing. Our scientific excellence is supported by world-leading infrastructure, FDA accreditation, and a strong commitment to our people, new technologies, and ESG. We're proud of our track record of over 85 integrated discovery programs and the key role that our scientists have played in collaborative teams, driving innovation and taking assets to the clinic and beyond. If you're looking for your next outsource partner, come and see us at www.jubilantbiosis.com. So that's it for another week. Next week, look out for, or I guess listen out for, an interview with two industry giants. Anyway, thanks a lot for joining us, and I hope wherever in the world you are that you have a great week ahead. Take care, and you'll join us next time for another Beyond Biotech. Beyond Biotech.